Well, the seminar is now half over. Uh, we have gone from praxeology to ethics. Now we go from ethics to liberty. Uh, uh, this section first uh, is about uh, justice, uh, etc. Uh, I'm using the term justice to mean the virtue that's concerned with rights, the virtue that's concerned with legitimately enforceable claims. That's not the only way the term justice can be used. Uh, you know, I can suddenly say things like, oh, you, know, you shouldn't say that about yourself, but you're being unjust to yourself, and so forth. There are lots of different uh, ways of using the term justice. But certainly, one uh, standard strand in the meaning of the term justice, uh, going back for a very long time, has to do with legitimately enforceable claims. It's in this sense that justice has always had a connection or association with law and legal institutions uh, and so forth. Um, now, Aristotle draws a distinction between narrow and broad conceptions of justice, and there's a broad conception of justice where justice is simply a matter of giving people their due, where that pretty much means you know, fulfilling all your interpersonal obligations of whatever kind. But he also recognizes a narrower sense of justice, which he connects more specifically with legal institutions. So when I say justice, that's the, it's the narrow, narrow sense I'm talking about. Uh, so the virtue of justice is whatever connects up with rights. Now, there's a long-standing dispute about what the, nation, the relationship is between considerations of justice and rights and considerations of utility, whether social utility or uh, individual utility. Uh, for example, uh, whether the basis of rights, the reason for having such an institution, the reason for respecting rights, is its social consequences and social benefits, the kinds of coordination and cooperation it allows, or whether instead justice is a matter of basic inherent respect that doesn't have anything uh, to do with uh, social consequences. Now, as I've already hinted, I think it's somewhere in between. I don't think justice depends uh, entirely on social utility or, or egoistic utility either. I don't think it can be entirely independent of either of those also. And I've said before uh, a bit about why I don't think it can uh, depend solely on utility. Um, but I'll just to remind you of, of uh, what my, uh, my claim was there. Uh, remember there's this distinction between ends and means, or things that are ends in themselves, versus things that are merely means to some further end. In Austrian economics, you have the distinction between goods of uh, first order and goods of higher order, or between uh, consumers' goods and producers' goods. Uh, the general idea is, are you choosing this as an end in itself, or as a means to something further? Now, of course, I've given an Aristotelian complication to that, where there are things that are not uh, causal means to our well-being, so much as components of our well-being. And there's a sense in which you might want to call those producers' goods because they are for the sake of, though not in a causal sense, our well-being, and there's a sense in which you might want to say that they're consumers' goods, goods valued for their, for their own sake, because they're valued for their role in well-being rather than producing something else. Uh, but if you, uh, so this distinction is ambiguous, but at any rate, if you, if you divide the distinction this way, so that something that either is your ultimate end or is a constituent part of your ultimate end counts as a consumer's good, and something that's merely causal to bringing that about counts as a producer's good, then it seems that utilitarians 
in the broad sense, anyone who thinks that uh, the value of morality is solely a matter of its producing useful consequences uh, for society or for whoever, uh, then you think that morality is, uh, or that in this case justice, is solely a producer's good. Uh, and incidentally, it's not, um, it's not only utilitarians who think this. You know, there are some virtue ethicists who, not, I think not sort of the mainline tradition, but there are a lot of modern virtue ethicists who uh, seem to think of justice and rights as purely instrumental to creating a framework within which uh, the exercise of virtue can flourish. And so even though they may not be utilitarians about morality as a whole. There are a lot of people who are not utilitarians about morality as a whole, but are utilitarians about justice. I think, well, the, um, the function of a legal framework is just to promote and facilitate the exercise of the other virtues, and it's got nothing to do with justice itself. Uh, but, as I said before, I don't think that that's a, a, a stable view, because praxeology shows that... Uh, I think, you know, for example, the arguments you get in human action show that you can't uh, consistently uh, get social prosperity and social well-being unless uh, principles of uh, property rights and free exchange and, uh, and things like that are treated as uh, principles, not just as rules of thumb that you discard as soon as you think you see a way that you could promote uh, uh, the, you know, your end some other way. And there are lots of things that you might think are your principles, but you realize they're not really principles. Uh, you might think that you always, you know, there might be certain ways you always do something, but as soon as you see that you could advance your goal more efficiently by dropping that and doing something else, then, uh, uh, then you do. Um, for some reason, the example that comes to mind isn't all that terribly helpful, but I remember this this example in Animal Behavior from Conrad Lorenz was talking about this, uh, this bird that flew into his house one day, and first it flew to the downstairs window, but the window was closed, and it beat, it beat its wings against that window for a while, couldn't get out. So then it flew, went over to the stairs and flew up the stairs and out, because uh, the top window upstairs was open. And then from then on, the bird would often fly into his house, and the bird would always fly to the downstairs window first, beat its wings there for a while, then go to the stairs and go up and fly out. It got that sort of routine. And then one time the bird came, flew in and started to fly right up the stairs and then stopped, went down, went to the window, beat its wings <laughs> there, and then went up. Well, that's, you know, that's just sort of, you know, means fetishism in a way. I mean, it, uh, the, uh, it's you know, sort of the bird equivalent of superstition. I mean, I don't know what, what's really going on in the bird's head. But I mean, that's a case where there was no reason to adhere. This was a traditional sequence by which it got to its end, but it had at least to some extent realized that that portion of the sequence was dispensable, that it could promote its end more efficiently the other way, but it had just out of some crazy habit it went back there. Well, you know, if you think about your principles that way, uh, you know, then you know, they may initially be useful. Initially, uh, you know, you had, the bird had to explore all the available avenues before it knew how to get out. So the first time it flew to the window, nothing stupid about that. But, you know, the more often it does it, the stupider it gets. Um, uh, so you might think that the rational way to treat principles is, you know, you dispose of them whenever you see a more direct route to your end. 
But I think what, you know, what people like Mises show is that you're not reliably going to get the end if you treat your principles like that. That you have to have a fairly firm commitment to them. Well, you think it has to be a absolute commitment or something weaker, at any rate, it has to be firmer than just, you know, dispense with it whenever you see a more direct route. And uh, that means that you have to treat these principles as though they were consumers' goods, not merely as producers' goods. And then I claim that once you're treating them as consumers' goods, if you really are treating them as consumers' goods, they just are consumers' goods for you now. And so whatever your justification may have been for getting yourself to care about them, that's not your justification anymore. Now you care about them for your own sake, for their own sake, and whatever story you tell about why they're good has got to be something more than just appealing to this story about what your past self cared about. So that's the reason for thinking rights can't depend wholly on utility. I don't think that's the only reason uh, for thinking that. I think also, you know, if you really take seriously the notion of, uh, of other concern, uh, it's not just sort of, you know, concern for sort of overall concern for the, you know, majority of people. You're concerned with people as individuals. And so you're always going to, you know, there's something awkward about thinking about rights in terms of sacrificing individuals for the sake of larger groups. Uh, if all you care about is sort of maximizing well-being uh, across the planet, then that could be acceptable. But I don't think other concern takes the form of concern for a collective co-op. Other concern is concern for other agents, not for some big super agent. However, I also think that rights cannot be completely independent of utility. Uh, and again, that's the unity of virtue uh, thing. We're committed to caring about prudence and benevolence, I've argued. We're committed to caring about our own interests. We're also committed to caring about other people's interests. So whatever the content of justice is, it's got to be something that stands in reciprocal determination with our concern both for our own interests and for the interests of others. And so the content of justice couldn't be something that was just completely irrelevant uh, to those things. So the content of people's interests has to play a role in determining the content of justice. But one reason that this is not utilitarian is it goes vice versa too. The content of justice plays a role in determining the contents of people's interests. So you don't can't just take people's interests fixed as whatever they you think they are, and they just say, "All right, justice has to reconcile itself with those." Uh, you also don't do the reverse. You don't just hold the content of justice fixed and say, "You know, now I'll tell whatever story I to tell about people's interests that'll make them turn out to be consistent with justice." That's going to be a mutual adjustment. There's no grounds for favoring one side of it over the other to keep fixed. So. Uh, your view about what's good for people, what will benefit them, gets revised in the light of your about of your thinking about justice, but also vice versa. Uh, now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, virtue ethicists sometimes write as though the content of justice is entirely determined by whatever is needed to promote a society of virtuous persons. Uh, and here I'm going to quote a concept from Douglas Denial. Perhaps ironically, because I think that in some writings, Douglas Denial is one of the people I want to criticize here. But I think in other writings, he's one of the people I'm using to criticize uh, that group. Because Doug Denial and Doug Rasmussen have this idea of rights as a metanormative framework, meaning that justice isn't, I mean, I'm oversimplifying their view a bit, but I've been oversimplifying philosophers all week, why stop now? Uh, <laughs> but their view is that in some sense, justice is not part of the good life. Justice is, a, or the rights are not part, respect for rights is not part of the good life. Respect for rights is what supports a framework which enables us all to pursue the good life. 
so, uh, although they might kick a bit at the description, it seems to me that that's um, to some extent a uh, you know, consequentialist leaning account of justice, even though it's not a consequentialist account of, of uh, morality as a whole. However, denial also has a distinction I want to invoke between what he calls demand-side ethics and supply-side ethics uh, by a, I think, very loose analogy with, with uh, demand and supply-side in economics. Uh, demand-side ethics is when you think about what the demands of, uh, of uh, ethics are primarily in terms of the what the recipient is like. So I'm trying to think what I owe you, you know, how should I treat you? We focus, in, in trying to answer that question, we focus primarily on facts about you, facts about your needs and so forth. And you can see it's pretty easy to get a kind of a you know, welfare rights approach. Um, though I think even in this basis you could, you could get around it. But it's, it's easier to motivate a kind of welfare rights approach or positive rights approach where you've got all kinds of positive claims on other people's help and services. If you think that what determines my obligations to you is primarily facts about your needs, um, and he contrasts that with supply-side ethics, where what grounds my obligations to you is primarily facts about uh, me and my flourishing. And so denial contrasts modern ethics, which he sees as uh, largely uh, demand-side, particularly utilitarian ethics. Kantian ethics is not, not so clearly so, but um, utilitarian ethics focuses on people's needs, and what I owe people depends on facts about uh, them. And denial contrasts that with the more Aristotelian tradition that he favors, which he sees as being more supply side, that is, as basing facts about your obligations to others, primarily in the fact that, that living a certain way is part of your own flourishing. <coughs> now, of course, to some extent, this has to be an artificial contrast, because any ethical theory is, of course, going to say that what I owe you is going to depend upon on facts about me and facts about you. you know, no theory is going to really soberly say that it depends just on, on one side. And certainly I wouldn't want to say that, since I balancing it. Because it is so frequent for people to think in demand-side terms when they think about ethics, I think it's worth recalling the supply-side point. Um, that uh, that often my obligations to you, a lot of, the, of my, the reasons for my obligations to you have to do with facts about me and what flourishing for me is like. And so then my complaint is going to be that although denial uh, wants to be a... Um, no, now, I, I, let me just add in passing, I have not read the, the Douglas's most recent book, Doug Denial and Doug Redson's most recent uh, book, so it's possible that uh, all the worries I'm raising have been... Uh, uh, Trounced in there, and I'm not meaning to really to make this into a. Okay, uh, I've been assured that they have not. They have not resolved this, so <laughs> I won't say by whom. Uh, the um, anyway, the point of this is not you know, not to beat up on Doug. Um, I just want to give this example of uh, uh, this distinction because I want to say that if you if you think as some virtue ethicists do uh, that the point of justice is simply to protect this arena in which people can pursue their virtue or to promote certain ways that they can pursue their virtue or whatever, you're adopting an awfully demand side 
uh, conception of justice. You're thinking that the value of justice depends primarily on the, on the needs of the people whose rights are being respected. So you think that the point of rights is primarily to protect the interests of the rights respecter. Now certainly I do think that's an important part of the story. Uh, you know, there was a time when I wanted to be purely supply-side about this, and as I mentioned, I've, uh, I've mellowed. Uh, but certainly I think it's important to uh, not to forget the supply-side aspect of this. The, the, the reasons that I should respect your rights are not just facts about the fact that you, you know, that your rights somehow protect you and things that you need, but rather that respecting people's rights, if, if justice is going to be like the other virtues, the exercise of the virtue is supposed to be a benefit to the person who has it. And so uh, it seems that the exercise of virtue shouldn't be justified solely on the grounds of the benefits it brings to the rights protectors. So it seems to be sort of leaving a crucial strand of the ancient tradition behind. Remember, the whole point of Plato's Republic is to try to show that justice, uh, which for Plato doesn't exactly mean respecting rights, of course, but that, for ju that, uh, but that justice is, uh, is a benefit to the person who has it. And it's a benefit not just because it you know, gets other people to cooperate with you, but that just your soul is in a better state if you're a just person. Not a better state, with a, not a government state, a better condition. Your soul's in a better condition if you're a just person. Um, and despite my many misgivings about Plato's Republic, I think that's one aspect of it that I like. I think that's an important part of the ancient tradition that I think a lot of modern virtue ethicists uh, are losing track of by having a more, more sort of uh, instrumental account of justice and rights. Well, all right, so what is a right? Uh, the term has been defined in different ways. And in fact, the term is used in a number of different contexts. There isn't just one meaning for the word right. For example, people often say things like, uh, well, you have no right to complain about this restaurant because you're the one who insisted we come here, that kind of thing. And when the word right is used in that context, it clearly doesn't mean the kind of right we're talking about when we're doing political philosophy. They're not, when they say you have no right to protest, they don't mean, you know, it would be all right to... You know, forcibly prevent you. They just mean, you know, you've got no business uh, complaining. You shouldn't complain. You have, it's not permissible. Uh, you know, it's something objectionable, but you're complaining. But it doesn't mean that you should be stopped by force. Um, however, I think that when we talk about rights in political philosophy, uh, we usually mean two things. Uh, we mean First of all, the people have an obligation to respect your right. We usually don't say that you have a right to do something unless we mean that other people have an obligation to, to let you or help you or anyway, to do something. Other people have, uh, have some... You're having a right means you have some kind of claim on other people's behavior. Now again, remember last time from previous times, uh, Hobbes didn't have that conception of a right. Hobbes thought that a right was simply, you know, it's legitimate for you to do it. So I might have a right to kill you and you might have a right to stop me and... Uh, that's a different sense of the word right. But in political theory, by right, we, a right is something that other people have to respect. So I've, in good uh, analytic philosopher fashion, I've said that, uh, that one implication of person P1 having a right to be treated in manner M by person P2 is that P2 has an obligation to treat P1 in manner M. So if I have a right against you, that means you have an obligation to treat me in a certain way. Um, and this is true regardless of what the content of your theory of rights is. Uh, you know, so if, whether you have a libertarian theory of rights or some other theory of rights, I think that this structure will be the same. 
So if it's a libertarian theory, so I have, if I have a right not to be aggressed against, that means that everyone else has a duty not to aggress against me. Um, but uh, also if you have uh, a non-libertarian theory of rights, let's say you have a divine right of kings, I'm the king and I have a right that everyone obey me, part of what that implies is that everyone else has an obligation to obey me. So whether your, your theory of rights is libertarian or not, I think it's going to imply this obligation. However, I think that's not enough. The mere fact that other people have an obligation to treat you in a certain way is not enough to ground a right, as we ordinarily put it. Because there are lots of obligations that uh, people have that we don't think correspond to rights. Uh, you might think that uh, you have an obligation not to be rude to your grandmother, but you might not think that your grandmother has a right uh, that you not be rude to her. Except, I mean, there's again, there's a sense of right where right just means any kind of a claim. Any kind of moral claim is a right. We use the term that way. In that sense, of course, she has a right. Uh, but when we talk about rights in political philosophy, we, we, uh, we mean something stronger than that. In that sense, she doesn't have a, uh, a claim. And uh, so my suggestion is that the, uh, the other part, my suggestion, oh yeah, I've, I've invented this idea, <laughs> that the, um, uh, the other part of it is that it's enforceable. Uh, the difference between a right and other kinds of moral claims is that it's legitimate to enforce it. Legitimate for whom? Well, I say for the rights holder or for the rights holder's agent. You know, I don't, don't just want to say that it's legitimate for the right holder alone because you know, that means that they couldn't, couldn't call the cops or uh, living under anarchy, you couldn't call your private protection agency, or uh, I mean, if you saw someone being attacked, you couldn't come and help. So it has to be the agent. Uh, I think if, it, if you're their agent, that means either they consented or you have good grounds for thinking that they would consent if they weren't lying there unconscious bleeding or whatever. Um, so the second component is that it's permissible for the rights holder or the rights holder's agent to force people to treat them in that manner. Uh, now you might, so one way I put this is it turns out that all rights are rights to be treated in a certain way. You might think, well, wait a second, we have other rights besides those. Uh, you know, for example, uh, I have a right to this piece of paper. I own it. I've printed my words all over it. I, uh, you know, I, um, actually, this, this paper is probably paid for by the taxpayers of Alabama and by philosophy office, so actually there's room for debate about this. But um, this tie, this tie is not a government product. Well, I, I bought it with, with my public... Uh, anyway, suppose that I owned something. <laughs> um, then... Uh, you know, we would say, I have a right to this thing, but I haven't put it in terms of rights to things. We talk about rights to be treated in certain ways. Also, we talk about rights to action, like rights to free speech. Well, what I want to claim is that whenever you talk about a right to a thing or a right to, to do something, you're always really talking about a right uh, to be treated in a certain way. When I say that I have a right to this piece of paper, what I mean is that I have a right against you that you not take it away from me without my consent. If I say that I have a right to free speech, I mean that I have a right against you that you not interfere with my free speech. And this is true not just of libertarian rights, but of uh, non-libertarian rights as well. You know, if I think that, uh, you know, I have a right uh, that, uh, you know, if I have a right to a, you know, a guaranteed income, that means that 
I have a right against someone or other that they provide me with a guaranteed income. So it seems that whatever I claim to have a right to uh, always involves uh, some behavior on the part of other people. It might be that the other people have to positively help me do something, or it might be that other people have to refrain from interfering with my doing something. But anyway, whatever the right is, you know, if it's the divine right of kings, then the right is that other people obey you. But whatever it is, uh, some sort of other behavior. And notice one thing I have not included in here is, uh, you know, the permissibility of whatever action that you're protecting with the right. Uh, I might think that it's, uh, suppose that I want to go around preaching Nazi propaganda. Well, I might think that it's not permissible for me to do that thing. But I might still have a right to it because first, other people, it's impermissible for other people to interfere with me. And second, it would be legitimate for me or my agent to use force to resist them if they did try to stop me. Uh, you know, so although it would be wrong for me to preach the Nazi propaganda, if I do it and the cops come to arrest me, it would be all right for me to object to being dragged off to jail. I have the right to uh, resist being, uh, you know, being punished for things which nevertheless I ought not to do. Um, now, there is a tradition that says, no, you only have rights to do things that are right. And so it insists that in addition to these two things, you also include that uh, whatever activity you're trying to protect uh, be um, included under the right. Uh, and you know, perhaps etymologically, there's some grounds in favor of that, because it would then uh, it would make less of a disconnect with the sense of right that includes only the legitimacy of what you're doing. Um, but that's not the way we ordinarily use the term right. So I'm going to treat the term right in such a way that you can have a right to do things that are wrong. I'm not making, at this point, a substantive philosophical argument that you should be allowed to do so. I'm just, you know, I'm not using the term right in such a way that it settles that you don't. All right, so if having a right has two features, if my having a right involves both, you're having an obligation to treat me in some way, and it's being permissible for me to force you to treat me in that way, or for my agent to force you to treat me in that way, that means the existence of rights depends on both on facts about my moral duties and on facts about your moral duties. You know, so it's going to be both supply side and demand side in some sense. Um, the, you know, my right to free speech depends both on facts about your moral duties, namely you're having a moral duty to let me speak freely, and it depends on a fact about my moral duties, namely that I don't have a moral duty to, uh, uh, to um, refrain from using force. It's morally permissible. That is, I don't have a moral duty to do the opposite. It's morally permissible for me to use force or to bring in an agent to use force to defend me if you, um, uh, you try to prevent me from uh, exercising my free speech. Now, there's a slight complication here, which I will mention only to you know, wave off, uh, but there is a complication, which is, it seems like there are cases where, even where you know, there's a right that you could, that would be in some sense legitimate for you to enforce, there are cases where there's some good reason for you not to enforce your right. Um, and you might think, well, in that case, given that I'm including in the definition of right the legitimacy of enforcing it, uh, you might think that creates a problem, because that would suggest that as soon as there's some re good reason for you not to insist on your right, just out of you know, 
politeness or prudence or whatever, that suddenly it stops being a right. As soon as, you know, as, soon as you ought not to enforce it, it stops being a right. Um, now you could say that still, you, know, you could say, well, it's just things that you could ordinarily or usually enforce, or you could say, well, even though I shouldn't enforce it, if I were to enforce it, at least I would have a right to enforce it, in the sense that uh, it would be wrong for anyone to interfere with my enforcing it. But you can see how it could get more complicated and uh, perhaps infinitely complex, because um, you could just iterate each time. Say, well, it has to stop at one of these interactions, but there's no particular iteration it has to stop it. Um, I don't have anything terribly helpful to say about that. But at least in general, I think that these categories will hold. Uh, now, uh, if that's what rights are, then the question is, what constraints on the, are there and what sorts of rights people could have? Because you know, if you might think off in principle, you could write have anything. You, know? you have the right, you know, everyone could have a right that everyone else uh, say goo 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 whenever they meet them. It would be sort of universal right. We all have it. Um, you know, can we say anything to specify uh, or narrow the content of justice? Well, in particular, can we do anything to narrow it uh, to something like uh, libertarian rights? Well, uh, clearly what's central to the notion of libertarian rights is this idea of not subordinating other people to your will, or not forcing other people to do what you want against their will, or uh, not, you know, not compelling them to do things, not initiating force against them, uh, various ways of putting it. But anyway, not, uh, not compelling them to do something except you know, in self-defense or something like that. Uh, what reasons do we have for uh, narrowing justice to that? Now, it's certainly true that there's a long tradition of people describe when, when they give their sort of their first description of justice, it always is, you know, always looks something like that. If you look up sort of the you know, the old uh, you know, Byzantine imperial codifications of Roman law, and you read sort of the preamble when they're defining justice, it looks pretty libertarian. Then you go on and read the rest of the law, and you think, ooh, not so much. Uh, you know, so there's a sense in which uh, you know something like libertarian considerations have always been sort of the you know, the prima facie stereotype of justice, but then it turns out that, you know, in practice there's so many qualifications that you lose whatever the original libertarian principle was. But there certainly is a sense in which the prima facie con, when you talk about, about rights or about law and about protecting rights, you know, the first, people's first thoughts are about uh, murder and theft and assault. Leave theft aside because we'll talk about property rights tomorrow, but uh, murder and assault and all those things. Um, uh, that's sort of the immediate prima facie con context of you know, how, what we're supposed to be protected from by institutions of justice. Um, but you could say, well, it's just a historical accident. Uh, you know, in fact, there's no particular reason to have to stress the libertarian content of justice at all. So what can we say about that? Well, I've defended this idea of strong universalizability or agent neutrality or whatever you want to put it. I've claimed that uh, we can't coherently make sense of a conception of of well-being, it doesn't uh, require us to integrate other people's uh, well-being into it, or to uh, somehow uh, integrate those concerns that could be, uh, you know, it could be accepted from an agent-neutral standpoint, or something like that. Now that at least creates a certain presumption of equality. 
Now, a lot of libertarians are afraid of the word equality, because when you hear the word equality, they think, oh, that means, you know, everyone would be forced to have uh, the same amount of money. Uh, but there's a, another sense of equality. It's a kind of equality you find in Locke. The notion of equality and authority. The notion of uh, not subordinating other people to your will. Because after all, if I force you to do something, I'm assuming a kind of inequality, assuming or creating a, a kind of inequality between us. Because you're not forcing me to do the thing. I'm forcing you. I'm telling you what to do. So there's a kind of asymmetry between us when I force you to do something. Even if I'm forcing you to do it for your own good, still, you know, it's me up here forcing you down there to do something. And so whenever I force you to do something, I am you know, embodying a kind of inequality between us. And you might uh, think that at least there's a presumption against that. Maybe it's a defeasible presumption. Maybe paternalistic considerations could override it. It's not, you know, it doesn't settle the issue. But at least there's a presumption in favor of uh, not having this kind of inequality of authority among people. Uh, or as, uh, as Locke puts it, people are not made for one another's uses. Or as Kant puts it, you know, people should not be treated as mere means to the ends of others. Uh, so there's a long tradition of thinking about it uh, that way. Uh, but as I said, you might think, all right, well, inequality and authority, there's a presumption against it. Uh, and if I'm subordinating you for my own purposes, if I'm subordinating you in order to advance my own good, then it does seem as though that's violating this mutuality of concern, this agent neutrality. But as I said, this still doesn't settle the question of paternalism. If I'm subordinating you for your own good, you might think that there's at least some argument uh, that that could be justified from an agent neutral position. Or at least you can see sort of things pulling both ways from agent neutrality, uh, depending on whether you focus more on choice or whether you have more focus more on welfare. Well, I'll have more to say that about that in a, in a bit. Um, I forget whether it's today or, uh, or not. Yes, it is today. Um, so, in a very little bit. Um, but here's another point. Uh, in addition to the agent neutrality, you can also think about this idea of being human and trying to live as human a life as possible. And you might think that uh, if you want to embody rationality more in your life, uh, it seems as though, to the extent that you can embody rationality in your ends, your life embodies rationality even more than if you merely embody it in your means. You might think that if I choose to deal with you through reason and persuasion rather than coercion, when possible, to the extent that I treat you as a conversation partner rather than as someone to manipulate or intimidate or bash over the head, to that extent I am embodying a more human, more reasonable mode of interaction. It's more, you know, I'm, I'm embodying rationality in my relationships with other people. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, Aristotle gives this as one of the reasons for thinking that the political life is essentially human. Of course, this is because Aristotle thinks that of the political arena, uh, meaning the, the arena of the city-state, as the main venue within which people deal with one another through reason and discretion rather than force. Uh, now, uh, I would disagree with Aristotle about that being the only or the main or the chief plausible candidate for the context of mutual discussion. Yes? Isn't there a, a when you say gay rights, isn't that 
impossible thing because because a gay person is not is not acting rightly and yet he maintains that he has the right not to act rightly. Okay, so the question is uh, isn't aren't gay rights impossible on the grounds that a gay person is not acting rightly and you don't have a right not to act rightly? Well, I would disagree with both halves of that. I don't think it's true that a gay person is not acting rightly, but I also think it's true that even if they uh, were not acting rightly, uh, it's not part of the concept of a right that what you're protecting is, uh, has to be a right action uh, because you can have a right, you know, you can have a right to be a member of the wrong religion. You can have a right to uh, advocate the wrong political viewpoint, and so on. Uh, well, I, uh, a recent, a recent uh, uh, series on uh, AIDS on television. I, I worked many years in the Plasma Theresis Center. I was a physician in the Plasma Theresis Center. And uh, the company I worked for, every one of them that, that collected, uh, uh, collected blood and spun it down and took the uh, Kubernetes and used it, they had a system of screening these people out and they perfected it over the years they perfected it. It was almost almost impossible for somebody to get through there. But these these degenerates who, who donated their blood to a hospital who didn't have these screening things uh, were responsible for people like uh, Tennant Star, what was his name? Uh, and people Arthur getting AIDS from a blood transfusion. Now, there cannot be, I mean, unless you're going to abandon all, every every decent uh, instinct in society, there cannot be any way that for, a, for a gay person who, is, who has AIDS to donate a pint of blood and, and, and be judged doing what, in other words, doing the right thing. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, the the question is, uh, aren't there, are there gay people who donated blood that they knew was infected with AIDS to hospitals, and as a result, people uh, got sick with AIDS? And isn't that an example of doing something wrong? Yes, certainly, donating blood that you know is infected is a wrong action. In fact, I think it's probably an unjust action. Um, I think that's separate from the question of whether homosexuality is right or wrong, you could, you know, you can be homosexual and not donate infected blood, you can donate infected blood and not be homosexual. Um, but yeah, certainly, uh, you know, I don't think that there's a, um, a right to, uh, to give people uh, infected blood. Okay, so if rationality, uh, if embodying rationality in your relationships with other people involves uh, not only um, uh, involves not only sort of choosing the most rational, most effective means to your ends, but also involves uh, dealing with other people through reason, uh, then that would be a reason to, uh, uh, to support the libertarian mode of interaction, even apart from, you know, even, even in paternalist cases. That is to say that uh, if I force you to do something for your own good, in that case I am still dealing with you through force rather than persuasion, and that should be avoided when possible. And we'll talk uh, uh, tomorrow morning about uh, when, when force is possible. So those would be reasons for supporting the first, uh, the first component of rights.
which is the obligation uh, to treat people in a certain manner. Where does the permissibility of using force to treat people uh, in a certain manner come up? Well, as I said, I'm going to talk more about that tomorrow, but I want to say a bit about it uh, today. So the question is, why? You know, where where do we get the right to enforce? Where where does it become permissible to enforce these claims? Uh, it's one thing to say that no one should use force against anyone, but you know you could just have the pacifist position that you know, it's a shame that anyone uh, initiates force. You wish they wouldn't, but if they do, you will not respond in kind. Well, uh, as I said, although I'll say about more about this tomorrow, I think there's at least one consideration that you can mention. Uh, the uh, Aristotelian mean, as I said, is the mean between uh, the subhuman and the superhuman, between placing too much and uh, too little value on your own vulnerable embodiedness. And I think that uh, the unwillingness to defend yourself seems to count on the superhuman side of it. In other words, it's one thing to say, you know, if, you, if you sort of attack people to get what you want, that seems more like it's on the subhuman side. I'm going to say, I value my own vulnerable embodiedness so much that I'm going to attack you in order to get, uh, get what I want or what I need. But if on the, if, uh, that would be a reason not to initiate force. But it also seems as though uh, the unwillingness to defend yourself, just let people walk all over you, uh, seems to be not valuing your vulnerable embodiedness enough, thinking, oh, that just doesn't matter as long as I stick to my virtue. Again, it's more of a, of a Socratic than an Aristotelian position. Uh, and that would be a reason for trying to find the, uh, the mean or the middle way. Okay, some uh, further considerations about justice. I said before that no virtue could be completely expressible in stateable rules. Uh, I thought for a number of different reasons. But a number of people have noticed that justice seems more rulesy, more rulesish, more rule-oriented than the other virtues. You know, this is certainly uh, pretty true in, in Aristotle. In Aristotle, you're reading through the Nicomachean Ethics, you read chapter after chapter on courage and temperance and so forth, and the discussions of these and how they're means and so forth all look pretty much alike. There's not too much in the way of very express statable rules. Instead, you, you get these sort of very general characterizations of what you should care about. Then you get to the section on justice, and suddenly it's bristling with all these mathematical and geometrical analogies, as though there's some sort of precision in justice that's not involved in the other cases. Uh, we find the same thing in uh, David Hume and Adam Smith. Uh, because Hume gives this as a reason for thinking that justice is artificial. You know, just as when you find a, a crystal, uh, you say, well, a crystal is a bad example. When you find some very you know, regular rectangular object, that's a good reason for thinking it's man-made. When you find something sort of blobby and fuzzy, it's a good reason for thinking it's a natural product. The crystal is probably the last example I should have made. But, um, you know, so generally, when you find something very precise and rigid, like the rules of justice, Hume says, well, that's a sign that justice is an artificial human product. When you see things like courage and generosity and temperance and their boundaries are more fuzzy, well, that's a good reason for thinking that they're, they are um, uh, natural. Well, Smith doesn't agree with Hume about that. Smith thinks they're both natural, but Smith also draws the analogy uh, or makes the point. Uh, and Smith thinks, well, look, contrast, for example, justice with generosity. Uh, in the case of justice, the requirements are very rigid. Uh, if I owe you $10, then I owe you exactly $10. That's what I ought to pay. 
If I pay you $9, I'm being unjust. If I pay you $11, I'm not being super just. I'm not any more just if I pay you $11. Justice demands $10, and that's it. But what about the duties of generosity? Suppose I ought to be generous, and I ought to help you out with some money. You, know, you can't say, well, clearly $10 is the amount I ought to give, and $9 would be stingy, and $11 would be prodigal. No, the boundaries are much more fuzzy. You can know, say, well, a million dollars would be prodigal, uh, a penny would be stingy, but and in context, often you can narrow it down a lot more than that, but still there's no precise rigid rule for determining it. So, uh, you, could, um, uh, you, know, you could wonder about that. And Smith draws the analogy between uh, these two cases and the cases of grammar versus style. He says, the rules of grammar are pretty sharp and definite. Um, the rules of style are much more vague. You can memorize the rules of grammar and apply them in almost robotic fashion. And Smith thinks you can more or less do that with justice. I don't think he thinks you can do that perfectly with justice, but you know, much more so. Whereas uh, the other virtues are more like having a good writing style. There are guidelines you can give, but nothing so precise. So the question is, why is justice uh, much more precise and rules-oriented than the other virtues? Uh, now you could say, well, it's because it's the one that's going to be enforced by law. But then you can ask, all right, well, why is it going to be enforced by uh, law? Or why does the law have to take this, you know, this rigid form? What's the reason for that? And of course, Hume's answer was, it's because justice is artificial. Um, but if we don't want that account, what can, answer can we give? Smith's answer seems to be, well, we just have different kinds of innate natural sympathies. And some of our innate natural sympathies have very fuzzy boundaries, and others are very precise. And that's all there is to it. Um, but uh, it'd be nice to have something more helpful than that. Now, I think that there's a pretty obvious consequentialist reason why uh, the rules of justice should be more narrow and rigid than the rules of the other virtues. Um, of course, I don't want consequentialist considerations to be the, the main or only thing. I think they're relevant. Uh, I hope to find a non-consequentialist reason, too, but let me just say a little bit about the consequentialist reason. Um, uh, suppose, you know, suppose that we could solve the problem of getting wise judges. You know, it's also where, how do we pick the wise judges? Suppose we solve that problem. We could find who the wise judges were, and we put them in, in charge. And then, when you went around doing things, the you know, the rules of justice would not be very precise and rigid. They'd be kind of fuzzy, and you wouldn't know. You know, the average person would often get it wrong. And since justice is going to be enforced by law, because these are rights and enforceable claims, you're going to be dragged before some wise judge. And the wise judge will be able to tell. You won't be able to tell, but the wise judge will be able to tell what you should have done. And of course, you know, don't do that, do this instead. Now, as I said, I think there's a pretty clear consequential subjection to that, which is that one of the you know, useful functions of law is it allows us to coordinate our actions because you know ahead of time what you're allowed to do and what you're not. And if only the wise judge can tell you after the fact what you should have done. And you can't figure out, you can't know ahead of time what you'll be allowed to do and what you won't, and which contracts the, the wise judge will enforce, and which ones the wise judge will say, no, no, that wasn't such, such a smart move, you can't do it. To the extent that that's the case, even if we're assuming that the, all, the wise judges really are wise, and, they, and whenever you drag people before them to make a decision, they really make the best possible decision in each case. Even if we assume all that, assume those practical problems away, still there would be a practical problem that you'd have a lack of coordination 
Hmong people. No one would be able to predict ahead of time what they'd be able to do, and there'd be constant confusion. All right, so that's one reason that the rules of justice should be fairly rigid and precise and easy to grasp. But can we find any non-consequential reason other than just about the virtues of coordination? Well, uh, here's one, I think. Uh, Self-directed activity seems fairly central to agency and functioning. It's sort of crucial to agency that you're, sort of, you're making decisions about what to do. Uh, the extent to which you are dependent on the decisions of other people and potential interveners seems, you know, to the extent that that's the case, it seems to uh, uh, be an affront to your dignity, uh, an affront to your sense of your own agency. Uh, now, it's less true with the other virtues. The other virtues, you're the one who goes about deciding what the, you know, what the brave thing is to do, and if you make the mistake, as long as you're you know, not running against any rules of justice, then under a just system, no one's going to interfere with you. They may tell you, no, you shouldn't have done that, but you're not going to be, you know, your continuation of your action isn't something going to be interrupted by their say-so. But if you are, you know, but in the case of force, of people coming and actually sort of forcing you to do something different, it seems that's serious enough that, you know, you should minimize it as far as possible. And so you don't want, uh, you know, it's just, in, and not because it has this further result of discoordination, but just in its own right. You don't want to be uh, affronting people's dignity like that, and so therefore you don't want to conceptualize justice in such a way that you're going to have to do that a lot. Uh, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't uh, construct your own conception of what justice requires of you on the assumption that everyone else is going to be equally wise. You know, now, Herbert Spencer has this argument that absolute ethics should just assume moral perfection in everybody, and that relative ethics has to you know, assume you know, what you do when other people are not so perfect. Uh, but, uh, and he thinks that you know, only in absolute ethics can you really get definite answers, and relative ethics is all kind of squishy. Um, well, that kind of narrows the, the scope of ethics, since uh, we need to be able to decide uh, how best to deal with the fact that not everyone else is as morally perfect as we are. And we also need to deal with what we do about our own past moral mistakes and so forth. Now Spencer says, ethics cannot presuppose its own denial. And therefore, ethics cannot presuppose the existence of unethical people. But sure it can. I mean, it can't presuppose its own denial in the same respect. But uh, you know, any system of guidelines can you know, presuppose that some people are not following them. Uh, or have not followed them, and it can tell you what you should do about that fact. Now, of course, it's not, well, when it's giving you guidance, it's not assuming that you in that very moment are going to disobey that guidance. Obviously, that wouldn't make sense. But it can give you guidance on the assumption that someone else might not obey that guidance, or that you, previously in the past, might not have obeyed that guidance. In fact, most, most guidance does assume you haven't followed that guidance in the past. That's why they're telling you now. Uh, so... Uh, uh, so I think that um, uh, we can, you know, we should try to construct our conception of justice being aware that not everyone's going to be perfectly wise, and therefore being aware that not everyone's going to be perfectly just. And if we think that, uh, if we value self-directed activity, we don't want to construct the content of justice in such a way as to license you know, the need for constant intervention. We want to make it the case that it's not you know, that you don't have to be super-duper wise to figure out uh, the content of justice. Now, again, I don't think that means that the content of justice can be, you know, reducible to rules that are just applicable robotically. 
there will always be hard cases, for example. But you don't, you don't want to minimize the hard cases. Now, uh, what should we say about people who are rationally impaired or rationally incapacitated? This can include young children, people in a coma, uh, people who are insane or perhaps you know, hallucinating or something. Uh, you could argue that also includes the dead if you think that the dead have, uh, uh, have rights, say right of bequest, for example. Um, how do we go about, uh, so the idea is that let people exercise their rational agency. What about people whose rational agency is, is not so good? Um, what do we do about that? Well, I would say that what we do is we do the nearest we can, which is that we go by what the rights holder would consent to if their rational faculty were not impaired. Now, sometimes we have a very good idea what that is, and sometimes we have a kind of hazy idea what that is. We have a very good idea of what that is if, you know, they've, let's say they've written something out that says, you know, in case I should ever be incapacitated to do this. Yeah. Now, it's not perfectly reliable because, you know, they might have changed their mind after they wrote that or something, but still, that's a pretty good guidance. There are cases where we don't have anything specific like that. We don't know anything specific about them, and so we just have to make our, you know, our best guess. You find someone lying in a coma in an alley or lying unconscious in an alley, and... You know, absent evidence to the contrary, it seems like a good reason to assume that they would consent to having some, some help, and uh, you can call an ambulance or whatever. Uh, uh, so what we do with the incapacitated is that we uh, try to, uh, uh, you know, that what we're uh, permitted uh, to do for them is, or do to them is what they would consent to uh, if their faculty were not impaired. You know, so notice that what this means is not that you do for them what is best for them necessarily. You know, often what they would consent to is what is best for them, but sometimes uh, it's not. You know, so for example, if you, uh, you know, if you find someone lying in an alley and you know they're a Jehovah's Witness and that they uh, don't want a blood transfusion, then I would say that uh, in that case you uh, shouldn't give them blood transfusion if you think it would be best for them. Um, of course, you, know, you, to, you should be pretty darn sure that they really are a Jehovah's Witness. You shouldn't just say, oh, they may, may look like a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, <laughs> uh, however, if there's no evidence one way or the other, uh, you, know, you go with sort of the default assumption, whatever the default assumption uh, is, which will depend on context. Um, you know, if you're uh, you know, if you're living in a community that where 99% of the people are Jehovah's Witnesses, maybe the default assumption should be it's a Jehovah's Witness, but uh, otherwise not. Uh, so, you know, what's the reason for this? Well, the reason for this is that what you can do to a person uh, without their explicit consent is going to depend on whether you can make sense of what you're doing as being their agent. Uh, you know, so for example, if if uh, someone's being attacked. You can defend them on the grounds that you are constituting yourself as, uh, as their agent. And so that's why you have to have some idea of what they uh, would consent to so that you can interpret what you're doing as stepping in being uh, their agent. Uh, incidentally, I think this, um, uh, this also applies to uh, you know, the raising of children uh, when you're uh, trying to uh, figure out what you do for them. You just do for the child, you know, 
whatever you, do you just do for the child whatever the child wants? Or do you for the, do for the child whatever is best for the child? Well, I'd say not either exactly. You do for the child what the child would consent to if their rational capacity weren't impaired. Um, and, uh, you know, when they're really young, maybe your best guess about what that is might be the same thing as their well-being. Once they're older and you know, for example, uh, more about what their, you know, as their rational capacity gets more and more developed and you have a much better idea what it is they're likely to uh, be wanting once their rational faculty is completely unimpaired. I think that influences what you, you know, what you can do at that point. Um, I think there's a, a moral I want to make in passing. Is I think this this would suggest that there can't really be animal rights, which I mean that we can't have enforceable obligations to animals. So we have all kinds of moral obligations to animals, perhaps. The reason I think they can't be enforceable is that to enforce uh, someone's moral claims, you have to be able to act as their agent. To act as their agent, you have to be able to regard yourself as doing what they, what they would do if their rational capacity weren't impaired. I think that's an important difference between a young child and a non-human animal. You know, maybe an infant and an animal both are you know, functioning at, you know, at below minimal rationality. But it makes sense to say that the infant has a rational capacity that is impaired. I also think this would be true, let's say, of the severely mentally disabled, uh, that e even though they may never be able to function properly, because they are human and their brain is sort of geared and, and, uh, and functioning as though you know, what its point was supposed to be is to engage in uh, sort of its natural telos was to engage in uh, a rational uh, functioning of capacity. Therefore, I'd want to say that uh, um, we can make sense of that person as having an impaired rational capacity. But I think that uh, when you get to non-human animals, or at least non-human animals possibly excluding some of the ones at the, uh, the top of the chain, like you know, dolphins and primates or whatever, uh, I'm not sure what to say about them, but when you get to ones farther down, it doesn't seem the right thing to say that a uh, that their ra rational capacity is impaired. They don't have a rational capacity. Uh, there's not something wrong with them. You know, if, if you're a human being uh, and you can't uh, and you can't use language, let's say it seems like there's something wrong with you. Uh, well, if you're an infant, there's not anything wrong with you, but it'd be wrong if you didn't eventually develop it. If you never developed the capacity for language, there's something wrong with you. But if you're a dog and you never could develop the capacity for language, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. You don't have a defective rational capacity. Just you don't have a rational capacity. You don't have that slot. It's not that you've got the slot, but it's not as full as it should be. Just no slot there. So I don't think that we can be agents for animals in that sense. And therefore, I don't think uh, the moral claims of animals are enforceable. So I don't think there are animal rights. Uh, although I think that uh, treatment of animals would certainly uh, fall under moral categories like uh, cruelty and kindness. All right, why, what's wrong with paternalism then? So someone says, look, uh, you know, so we do whatever people would do if they were fully rational, right? That's what you're saying. Well, then whenever you see someone doing something that's not fully rational, you can force them to do the fully rational thing. Isn't that right? Well, I want to say that there's a difference between having a, an unimpaired rational faculty and behaving in a fully rational way. Because, remember, I believe in free will. Uh, can't uh, make sense of the notion of 
of choice has been clearly determined. And that means that even if your rational faculty is fully functioning, there's nothing wrong with it, it's not impaired in any way, nevertheless, you could still make an irrational choice. It just means that now you're able to make the rational choice. But the ability to make the rational choice is no guarantee that you're making it. So the mere fact that someone is doing something irrational is not a proof that their irrational, that their rational faculty is impaired. Uh, you know, might be evidence for it, but you, know, you need more uh, data. Um, exactly what kind of data I'm uh, not prepared to say. What the, what the cutoff is between a person with a rational faculty who's behaving eccentrically and a person whose rational faculty is actually damaged, uh, it is, uh, it's not easy to say. And of course, someone like Thomas Saws would question whether there is such a distinction at all. Uh, I think that there, there probably is a distinction, but I have no idea how to draw it. And certainly I think that uh, when in doubt, you should err on the side of assuming that, you know, you should assume that people are, they have a, a, a functioning rational capacity until you have evidence to the contrary. Um, you should err on that side. Uh, one thing I think you can't universalize the contrary. You can't, you know, you certainly want people to assume, you know, if you depart from rationality, you want people to assume that you've got free will rather than that you're now, you know, a candidate for the asylum. And so um, uh, you should extend others the same courtesy until you have evidence to the contrary. So uh, what, what licenses paternalism, if you want to know what would or wouldn't license paternalism in the case of adults, you have to ask what licenses in the case of children. Because people sometimes think, well, the reason paternalism is okay with children is because it's for the good of the children. Once you say that, then you can say, well, then, why on the same basis couldn't we coerce adults for the good of the adults? But I want to say that it's not, it's not uh, that the good of the child alone is not by all by itself what licenses paternalism. What licenses paternalism is you know, counterfactual consent, the assumption that the child would consent. Uh, if, they, if their capacity weren't impaired. And that's why as they get older and their rational capacity gets more developed, and you have more evidence about what they're going to want once their rational capacity is no longer impaired, then you can no longer substitute your judgment for theirs to the same extent that you could uh, earlier. So uh, you have uh, more reason to take a teenager's preferences seriously than a toddler's preferences seriously. Even as I say that, I can Imagine cases where it doesn't seem true, uh, but uh, you know. See, so this is kind of a general principle that um, the uh, if you're uh, if you're 15 year old, well, maybe 15 year olds are already at the point of rational capacity anyway. If you're um, well, you should take more seriously a religious conversion that your 13 year old tells you about than a religious conversion your three year old tells you about exactly how seriously you should take the 13-year-old one, I don't know. But anyway, more seriously than the three-year-old because uh, it's more likely to express uh, the um, uh, later preferences. Um, well, uh, so it's, um, it's not paternalism but counterfactual consent that licenses paternalism with children. It's not their good, but it's not their good alone, uh, but uh, what they would consent to. All right, well, while justice is non-consequentialist, it's still it's in reciprocal determination with uh, consequentialist aspects. Remember that you have to integrate prudence and benevolence into your overall approach to virtue. 
prudence and benevolence, although they're not purely consequentialist, have consequentialist aspects. I don't count as prudent if I have no concern for uh, what consequences will befall me. I'm not benevolent if I have no concern for what consequences will befall you. So I have to integrate concern about such consequences into uh, my own uh, conception of what's virtuous. So I have to integrate them into uh, justice. Uh, so considerations of utility can play a legitimate role in specifying the content of justice. Um, they're, not, they're not the only or even the main feature, but they're relevant. And I think that, uh, first of all, that explains, uh, that explains why, uh, well, put it, let's put it this way, there was um, uh, a number of consequentialist libertarians have argued that non-consequentialists are really insincere because all the non-consequentialist libertarians claim that their attachment to rights is purely for, uh, you know, for the inherent value of the rights themselves and not for social consequences. Nevertheless, all these libertarians in fact believe that, the, uh, that uh, libertarian rights in fact would lead to the best social consequences. And, you know, so the question is, uh, how come we don't find anyone who thinks, because there are lots of people who think that libertarianism would lead to horrible social consequences. But why don't we find any libertarians who think libertarianism would lead to horrible social consequences? Why don't we find some deontological libertarians who think, I think libertarianism is going to lead to, you know, to poverty and gang warfare in the streets and, you know, mass catastrophe, but I'm in favor of it on deontological grounds. Um, you know, a number of libertarians have, have said that they would favor it in those cases, but I don't know of anyone who does. And so a lot of people say, aha, this shows that these non-consequentialist libertarians are crypto-consequentialists. That really, their real reason for being libertarian is the consequences. And they're just you know, spewing a lot of guff about rights. Well, I don't think that is the right moral to draw. Uh, you know, I think it is. it shows something, but it doesn't show what the uh, consequentialists uh, say. Because, of course, you could make the same argument against the consequentialists. You could say, look, you consequentialists say that you're in favor of rights not because you think they res express respect for personhood. You're in favor of rights because they think that they'll bring social prosperity. But would you still be in favor of rights if you thought that they expressed contempt for personhood? Uh, you know, why don't we find any deontological libertarians to say, no, I think uh, libertarian rights express absolute contempt for personhood, but as a consequentialist, I don't care about that, I only care about social consequences. Well, we don't find that either. Yeah. So I think that implicitly, uh, both sides think that both considerations matter. And allowing one in and allowing it to matter doesn't mean that you throw the other one out the window. Uh, yeah, what about... Um, uh, so what that means is, for example, there are cases when it's difficult to decide in which way to de develop libertarian rights theory. You've got the general framework, you can have a lot of libertarians agreeing on the general framework, but then they'll disagree about how to extend it or apply it to a particular kind of case. And they'll debate back and forth, and you know, some consequentialist standing on the sidelines between these deontologists says, yeah, well, you know, these justice considerations are silly. You should determine it based on, on consequences. And the, um, and the deontologist will say, no, no, we're not consequentialists. And they'll try to do it you know, purely in rights theory. What I want to say is that uh, on this theory, 
without being consequentialist, without thinking that rights are based on consequences, it is perfectly legitimate to bring consequentialist considerations in when you're trying to narrow or more specifically uh, determine uh, the scope or the application of rights. And you know, you've, got a, you know, you've got two different ways you might develop it. it seems that you're perfectly, it's perfectly allowable to bring in consequentialist considerations as a reason for developing it one way rather than the other. And you can use consequentialist considerations as, you know, as tiebreakers at least, uh, or as, as reasons for developing one way or the other, or reasons for specifying the content of libertarian rights without thereby thinking that consequentialism, consequentialism is the whole story about why we have uh, these rights in the first place. But utility doesn't get to trump everything because the uh, determination works in the other direction too. Uh, what counts as utility, what counts as a good consequence, has to be influenced to some extent by considerations of justice. There's this uh, place in Aristotle's politics. There are some libertarian things in Aristotle's politics. Not many, but there are. Uh, one of them is this passage where Aristotle asks the question, well, if uh, happiness is all about pre performing virtuous actions, uh, then why wouldn't it be the rational thing to do to do anything you can to get yourself into political power? Because once you're in political power, you have much greater scope for doing lots and lots more virtuous actions. You can benefit lots of people and so forth. And so therefore, why shouldn't you be willing to do anything necessary to get into political power, including monstrously unjust things? I didn't know I was going to have a percussion set. <laughs> <laughs> For those listening at home, I don't know if this is getting it onto the microphone, but it did sound like a drum set inside the air conditioner. <laughs> uh, either that or sounded like someone trapped inside a, a metal garbage can trying to fight their way out. Um, uh, now, where was I? Anyone remember the last thing I was saying? Nah, you weren't paying attention either, huh? Yes, thank you. Yes, Aristotle's politics. There's a passage where Aristotle says, why not just do anything unjust? You know, you know, kill your own family or whatever you need to do to crawl up the rings, the reins of the rungs of the political ladder. You know, even if your hands are dripping with blood, because you can make up for it once you get uh, up there and and you um, uh, and you. Uh, uh, can then do lots of, of virtuous actions. And... I mean, Richard III. No, no, no. I'm thinking of the, the guy that did, the, the man that did everything, climbed up on everybody, murdered his, his near and far relatives. Richard III does that yeah, in Richard Shakespeare. But he, once he gets in power, he doesn't do anything particularly good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, but Aristotle's answer is that this is based on a false assumption. It's assumed that you really can bring about a good result by doing these things. And his, uh, his claim is that uh, whether certain things count as good depends on how they were achieved. Uh, it's not just, you know, the, the goodness of something depends on how it's related to other things in your life. The, the, something a good, something's good depends on its contextual relationships to other means and ends it's involved with. You can't judge it just on its own. So the very actions that might count as good and beneficial if achieved one way aren't going to count 
as good and beneficial if you achieve them uh, this way. So you know, he's, not making the, he's not making the point that if you do this, you're likely to get corrupted and not do good actions. He might think that's true too, but that's not the point he's making. He means that even if you go up and do all these things that ordinarily would be good, they don't have the same worth. They don't have the same merit given the tainted way uh, that you acquired them. Uh, so, just as considerations of social consequences play a role in determining the content of justice, considerations of justice can play a role in determining what counts as a good social consequence. And as a result, this, you know, this doesn't let utilitarianism swamp everything, because we certainly don't want that. Um, another thing that can help to specify the content of justice, that is to narrow it, uh, would be things like custom. Uh, Take, for example, something like driving on the right versus driving on the left. You know, it seems like there's a good reason uh, for uh, having cars that are going in opposite directions drive on opposite sides of the road. Seems like a good rule, rule we ought to have. But there doesn't seem any obvious reason why it ought to be driving on the left as opposed to driving on the right. Now, maybe there's you know, some argument you could make that one of those is marginally better than the other for some reason, but uh, offhand it doesn't. It's not obvious that there is one. So this seems a case where it doesn't matter, you, where there's a general kind of thing that ought to be the case, but it doesn't matter that much which particular version of it uh, you get. But then, that would, it wouldn't then follow. Suppose, you know, suppose I go out and start driving on the uh, left-hand side of the street out there, and someone objects, and I say, well, look, you're already saying, you know, I bet, you know, there's no reason that driving on the left is any worse than driving on the right, so why shouldn't I drive on the left out there? And, well, the fact that everyone else is driving on the right is an awfully good reason for me to drive on the right. Yeah. But if I were in England, you know, the fact that everyone else is driving on the left would be an awfully good reason for me to drive on the left. So there can be cases where uh, you know, natural justice specifies a certain range of things, but doesn't specify anything more narrowly than that. And it can be perfectly appropriate for you know, existing custom or various sorts of things can narrow it down still further. This is also what I think, for example, about there's this um, there's this debate uh, as to whether uh, uh, when you buy something the uh, rule should be caveat emptor. That is, that the you are you assume that you're just buying it as is, and with and that the um, that the seller is not making any representations as to whether it's safe or dangerous or anything like that, unless they explicitly contractually say so. Or whether instead the uh, rule should be that you assume that they are uh, uh, that they are stipulating that it's safe or whatever, unless they, you explicitly contractually agree uh, you know, not to require that of them. Well, I think in many cases it's going to depend on what the prevailing uh, custom is, because the prevailing custom uh, is uh, you know is going to uh, affect what it's reasonable to assume people have consented to. You take the um, you know, case of walking to a restaurant, sit down, you order food without ever mentioning anything about paying for it. But, you know, in that society, there's a kind of assumption that unless you explicitly explain that you're asking for charity, the assumption is you're offering to pay for it. Uh, on the other hand, if you go in and offer a hamburger, and at the end they bring you a, uh, a bill and it says $1,000 on it, uh, well, again, given that that's so far from the standard price of hamburgers that you're justified in, you're justified in assuming it wasn't going to be uh, like that, you know, if it were twelve dollars when you expected six, well, okay, but thousand dollars, no. Uh, so often, custom is going to play a role in 
determining what, what default assumption is reasonable, though you can often contract out of it. Another example is you know, exactly what are, the, what are the requirements of property rights. If I, and we'll talk about you know, what justifies property rights tomorrow, but suppose someone turns into your driveway to turn around and back out. Are they trespassing? Well, uh, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but you could just say, well, depends what the, you know, what the default assumption is, or maybe this is something that natural law doesn't settle, whether that particular form of coming onto your property is all right or not, or, or when, the, you know, when the postman comes to your door without you ever having actually said it's all right for him to step foot on the walk, um, you know, whether that's permissible or not can depend on custom. Uh, but custom can't make legitimate something that's illegitimate, according to natural law. Uh, just because people have long acquiesced in some unjust system isn't enough to make it just. Okay, questions? Yes, Harry. I think I see what you're saying. I'm just, I was looking forward in, in terror to rephrasing your question. <laughs> but, all right, let me give it a try. So, so I've given an account of, uh, of children's rights according to which uh, you, what you owe them, is, uh, the way you treat their children has to, has to be constrained by what the child would consent to if they were uh, fully rational. And you've mentioned... Uh, you know, Rothbard's view, according to which, um, you know, when a child shows that it wants to be independent by running away, it thereby acquires independent rights. Before that, not. You worried that you were oversimplifying his view. I'm probably oversimplifying it too. But anyway, that's the cartoon version. And then you raise the following, uh, uh, the following question: uh, If you think that the will is inalienable, in other words, if you think that you cannot consent yourself into slavery, and I think that too, and I'll, I'll talk tomorrow about why. 
uh, so if you don't believe in, in uh, consenting yourself into slavery, then uh, you can tell me whether I'm capturing your example rightly, but so suppose you have some parents who are enslaving their child, um, and the child actually wants to run away, um, but would, if they were, if their rational capacity were unimpaired, they would consent to being enslaved. Because if their rational capacity were unimpaired, they wouldn't necessarily do the rational thing. They would, um, uh, they would instead agree uh, uh, to be enslaved. But if you think that the agreement to be enslaved is illegitimate, uh, you can't do that. Then shouldn't the child's actual uh, impaired preference to run away take precedence over their hypothetical or counterfactual unimpaired preference to illegitimately consent themselves into slavery? Is that was that right? Well, I was going to conclude that it seems to me Um, yeah, so then the further uh, question was, does it, if the fact that the child is currently, has their will or their rationality impaired, does that, you know, does that mean that there is, after all, reason to make them stay? Well, well I can say more about this tomorrow when we get to slavery contracts. One thing I want to say now is this. A slavery contract is a contract where you agree now to let people go against what you will want later. So if I, um, you know, so if I consent now, but tomorrow I say, oh, I've changed my mind and I want to run away, under a slavery contract, you can stop me from running away tomorrow because I consent now. I'll talk tomorrow about why I don't think that's legitimate. But let's just grant for the sake of argument that the co a slavery contract is not legitimate. Well, then I'd want to distinguish a slavery contract from sort of an agreement to an ongoing agreement to servitude, where I agree now to act as your slave, and I agree tomorrow to act as your slave, and so on. Um, in that case, as long as I keep agreeing at each point, then it's not a slavery contract. As long as I could, you know, as long as you would let me go whenever I decided to, as long as I agree to stay, then I, I wouldn't call it slavery. Uh, I'd call it um, you know, disgusting servitude or something. But I could agree to act as your uh, say I could just I could now say I hereby agree to do whatever you say from now on, and I could do that, and I could continue consenting that and wanting that from then on. So that wouldn't be. So I don't think that is uh, is um, it would be a violation of libertarian uh, principles. I think it would be uh, unlibertarian for reasons we'll talk about uh, in the ninth lecture. But it wouldn't be a violation of, of uh, libertarian rights. Uh, well. So the question is, what are we supposed to imagine this kid's choice is? If the, you know, if the choice, if the, uh, if the, if the kid's counterfactual choice, the choice that if they were rationally impaired, they would agree to stay. If the staying is, you know, if the staying that they would hypothetically agree to is an ongoing staying, where they ongoingly agree, you know, they would ongoingly agree each day to stay, then it doesn't seem as though it's uh, a slavery contract. Whereas if instead they would agree, you know, they would agree once to be enslaved so that they change their mind 
then they couldn't. Well, that I think they, you know, that's not legitimate. So we can't, we don't go by that preference, but we can go by the other one. At least that's my, my first stab at an answer. I think probably something more complicated is probably the right thing to say, but that's what I got right now. Uh, yes, you in the back. Uh, I have a section on abortion tomorrow. Uh, so I don't want to uh, uh, don't want to steal my own thunder yet, but yeah, I have stuff to say about that. Uh, the question was about uh, the rights of uh, the rights of the unborn. How do they uh, how do they fall under the rights of the rationally incapacitated? So I'll say stuff tomorrow. Yeah. So the question is, what is, do I have a story about at what point uh, a child passes from unimpaired to impaired rationality? Um, well, no, not precisely. I think, now certainly I think that it, it uh, will vary from person to person. I think, you know, some children achieve a kind of rational maturity long before others do. But, you know, presumably there should be, you know, and should be and would be a kind of legal default where people will be assumed to be unimpaired before a certain age and impaired after and you know, proof in court would have to be brought to the contrary in either, uh, in either direction. That seems uh, reasonable. But the question is, what would be a reasonable default? Um, uh, I'm not sure. Um, uh, eight is too young, uh, you know, so it's going to be after eight. Before 15, I would say, probably. Um, I don't... Uh, uh, probably closer to 15 than to 8. Um, but yeah. That, <laughs> uh, having never been a parent, I don't have quite... You know, after I'm a parent, I would probably have a... Um, have a different view, and I'd probably make it older. <laughs> but, so I don't know whether whether being a parent would give me both more information and more bias. So it would improve both improve and distort my cognitive perspective at the same time, which is what experiences of many kinds often do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, so the, the point is that children are making uh, decisions that require rationality long before they are even close to being rational. Um, I assume you mean they're making decisions that would require rationality if they were to be the right decision. Um, yeah, that's, that's probably true. <laughs> well, my grandfather used to say... <laughs> my grandfather used to say... My grandfather used to say that Every boy should be raised in a barrel and served through the bunghole until they're 18. But I can't imagine that would improve their social skills once they got out. <laughs> yeah. Here's a, Frederick is looking for one. Here, here's something that might help explain sort of uh, a bit of the mookiness of Brussels. Of course, there's other 
spirit and I want you to think of it, but um, that, you know, it, uh, things like a lot to the special exactness of justice compared to the other virtues compared to, is, is due to the fact that uh, a lot of paradigm cases of justice that you're thinking of are cases in which uh, sort of the, the first best, um, you know, sort of the, the first best fulfillment of the obligations of justice is, um, you know, either to ensure that people have all the stuff that's theirs, or else that they recover something that was wrong, right? So there's something that sort of fixes the specific amount that you're owed, which is this, you know, whatever it was that was yours to begin with, you're trying to get back. And, you know, I mean, there's, there are cases in which you can't recover the actual item that you lost. Um, you know, either it's impossible or you can't do it consistently with justice because it's worried about you know, proportionality or uh, whatever. Um, but, you know, it, it seems like, you know, precisely to the degree that you move away from those paradigm cases of just going after it best, you get a lot more sort of squishy judgments involved in figuring out what, you know, proper restitution is and, you know, how much you're supposed to pay people for their time and trouble when they didn't make a contract to determine how much it was and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think that's a very good suggestion. The suggestion is, uh, here's another reason that justice might be more rulesy than the other virtues, is that the paradigm cases of justice are generally going to involve either um, uh, uh, either keeping things just the way they are, or in cases of correcting something after something's gone wrong, you know, restoring what the situation was, giving back you know what the person took, or whatever. And so, given that, they're going to be fairly rigid and precise. And the farther you get away from those paradigm cases, when you get to cases where um, uh, where you can't restore the actual thing that that you took because you, you broke it, or or uh, there was no explicit contract and you agreed to pay them something but you didn't specify what. And when the cases get fuzzier like that, then it does get more judgmenty and less rulesy. So yeah, that is a plausible other additional cases too. And because you know, take the case that Smith gave about why it's exactly ten dollars you ought to give us because it's ten dollars that you agreed to give, or ten dollars that they gave you, or something like that. Whereas in the case of generosity. You know, there is no prior figure 10 in the story, usually, to point back to. And we are out of time. See you tomorrow.